0: They basically uh, people believed it, and these guys had got through to this church in Corinth, and uh, Paul is now writing a letter saying, "Guys, you've been duped. You've been duped." Uh, because imagine these guys coming saying, "Firstly, what Paul told me about Jesus is not totally true, and don't trust Paul." And they accuse Paul of all kinds of things in the letter that, that Paul makes mention to. And one of the things they say about Paul is they say, "Paul, that guy's not a good preacher." Honestly, that's what they say. That guy's not a good preacher. Of course, they're speaking to people in ancient Greece. And in ancient Greece, uh, every, you know the, the, the most powerful celebrities of the day were powerfully trained orators. They could stand up in front of a crowd and they can dazzle people. One of the philosophers called Demosthenes used to put uh, river rocks in his mouth and, and learn to... To, to do these speeches with the roxy's mouth just to develop the power of his voice. So they go, Paul, that guy can't preach. And obviously in this team there must have been one of the guys at least who had a dazzling oratory ability saying, Don't listen to Paul, listen to us. Because we can tap dance, you know, through our mouth. And, and then the other thing they said, hey, we think that Paul doesn't even take money from you guys. What? What credible religious leader doesn't take money from you guys? Of course, the next thing they said is a pastoral offering box because we we are actually collecting ourselves, and uh, so they're busy trying to do everything they can to undermine Paul. So far in the letter, you get the feeling that they're just arrogant and self-centered. But in today's passage, we discover that they're not even Christians. Paul actually sees them as straight servants of Satan. Okay, so be this is quite an intense part of the book here we go 2 Corinthians chapter eleven, verse 1 i hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness yes please put up with me so what paul is about to do he's about to do a no-no he's about to uh, explain that actually he is a very credible person you know it's not good to show your credentials you let other people show your credentials but Paul's credentials are being so annihilated by these people, he says, You put me in a corner, so I might need to tell you my credentials. So he's saying, Sorry about this, but I've been put it in a corner. And then he says this, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. You know, if um, jealousy, we tend to think of something just bad. You think about the insecure boyfriend or girlfriend, you can't talk to anyone. Jealousy is just bad. But there is a godly jealousy. Uh, you know, you, you, when somebody else is making moves on your, your partner, that feeling of uh, anger, <laughs> it's legitimate. That feeling, that, that, that being, sense of being roused to protect, that's a, that could be a godly jealousy. And Paul is saying, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to yeah. him. Paul is using an analogy. He's saying, hey, Corinthian church, you guys are kind of like, you're the bride of But in this particular metaphor, you're just engaged to Him. And you're busy, you're you're preparing for Him, and there's coming a day you're going to meet with Him. And my job is just to beautify you and get you ready for the big day. But already now, you are engaged, you are devoted to Jesus. He's won you over, He's swept you off your feet. And then Paul says this, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived... By the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's saying, hey, these guys have come along and they've taken your eyes off your fiancé. And now you're going to caught up in something else. You've been duped. You've been deceived. Do you remember how Eve in the garden, she loved God? <laughs> she trusted God. And by the time the devil had finished speaking to her, she didn't know what she believed anymore. She would rather be God than trust God. If you read the story in Genesis three, that's how how effective the cunning strategies of Satan was. He's saying these guys have got through to you. They put ideas in your head, and what actually happening here is you're being pulled away from your fiance, your tr- your heart's true love. And then he says this: For if someone comes to you and preaches of Jesus other than the Jesus we preach. Or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. It's a radical thought that you can say you believe in Jesus, but actually you believe the wrong stuff. Yeah, you know, a lot of people say, "I believe in God." I Every mean, different religion believes in God. The question is, what's in the suitcase? If there's a suitcase called God, when you unpack that suitcase, what's inside of it? What do you mean when you say you believe in God? Tell me about this God. Paul had told people about Jesus and then unpacked from Scripture and from history and the Gospel who Jesus is. And Paul says that these guys have come along. They also mentioned that name Jesus. So you go, oh, these guys believe the same thing. He says, but they packed something different in the suitcase. You've heard a different spirit. Maybe they even started to have spiritual experiences that are different than the experiences the Holy Spirit originally gave. They now believe a different gospel. The story has changed, says Paul. And you can read the book of two Corinthians. Paul all the time is correcting. In this particular case, the super came along and tried to introduce a more legalistic spirituality. They tried to put people back under the law of Moses. You can't just trust in Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. Plus, you need to work really hard to obey the law of Moses. I do not think I'm in the least inferior to these super apostles. He's being sarcastic. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker. He says, okay, but I can't speak like the and like th- that guy. But I do have knowledge. We've made that perfectly clear to you in every way. Paul's say, hey, I struggle to get my words out, but come on. I've got a lot of my stuff in now. You know it. And of course, you just need to read the book of Romans. But you realize Paul was an intellectual genius of the first century. I mean, he'd say, guys, I can't say that well, but I got it in (laughs) here. I do have knowledge. And, and, And the word knowledge is not only intellectual knowledge, it's experiential knowledge. Paul didn't only know about Jesus, he knew Jesus. And in fact, his understanding about Jesus only came clear once he encountered Jesus. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers and sisters who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Okay, what Paul is busy saying is he's responding to the charge that they didn't receive money. He says, hey, I do need money to live. And in this case, I actually fetched the salary from churches in Macedonia. I made a decision that when I came to Corinth, I would preach the gospel and I would not ask for any financial support. And the reason he does it, he actually spends in 1 Corinthians, is that in the city of Corinth, there were these orators that would walk around and they would pass around the basket in exchange for their oratory dazzling power. Paul thought, you know what, if I go to Corinth and I preach the gospel and then I ask for financial support, they'll confuse me with these people. So you had an idea. Another church in Macedonia and Greece said, don't worry, we will support you. And so Paul is busy explaining why he doesn't ask for money. And he's boasting about this fact. He's boasting about the fact, not because he's trying to boast for his his own sake. He's trying to boast for the sake of the church. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equaler with us in the things they boast about. He's talking about the super apostles. For such persons, and these are the most ominous lines. Like I said, up until now, we've thought of them as you know, they're arrogant, they're self-centered, but surely they're still true believers. Now listen to what Paul says. For such persons are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of life. It's not surprising then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their um, actions deserve. Ouch! saying, these guys pretend to be servants of righteousness, they pretend to be servants of Christ, and you are dazzled by the look of them, by the way they present themselves, the things they say, that scratch under the surface, and you will see something more sinister is afoot here. These people have been sent by Satan to try to, try to bring destruction to this particular church. And then it gets onto to the character of Satan. Satan is the master of disguise. He's the master of disguise. You know, if, if Satan were suddenly to materialize in front of us, he wouldn't be this, this, this glowing red angel with a pitchfork and the smell of disgusting sulfur would f- fill the air. In fact, he's described as an angel of lights. An angel of lies. He, he would dazzle us with, with beauty. And that's how Satan works in the world. He still works through deception. He still presents himself in a way that is so enticing. And I, I don't know what your spiritual journey has been, but the path to trusting in the gospel is one that you constantly face enticements in other directions. I mean, I think about the explosive success of the new spiritual consciousness that has come about in the last many decades in the Western world. You know, I mean, commonly known as New Age. I mean, in New Age writings, which proliferate, uh, you know, the bookshops and the esoteric bookshops, there's so much talk about Jesus. But it's a completely different Jesus. It's another Jesus. It's a different Jesus than the than one we know. I've got a friend who um, came to faith in Jesus, walked with Jesus for a few years, stopped coming to church, started going to these kind of esoteric workshops, training, and then I had a chat with her and she said to me, you know, I, I believe in Jesus but I think all Jesus is different than mine. And those words ag- agonized me because it just reminded me of this passage. I don't know if you know this, in the new spiritual consciousness, Jesus is a person in history who tapped into Christ consciousness. So imagine there's this kind of Christ consciousness that's available to any person. It's Christ principle. And if you are to make the greatest spiritual discovery and the greatest evolutionary advancement in your own journey, what you need to do is you need to be light and also tap into Christ consciousness. The awesome thing is you've got some avatars, some uh, way showers, uh, you know, some yogis like Jesus who've gone before you, like Buddha, like Confucius, others who tapped into that Christ consciousness to show you the way that you also can be Christ. There is no sense of peril in this message. The Christian gospel comes to person and says, You are lost without a savior. UH is so it doesn't have any hard edges, it just says, Hey, you here? You want to break through to the next level? I'll show you how. Jesus will show you how. It's a completely different Jesus. And it's very enticing. And it comes along with all manner of spiritual experiences. You can have lots of spiritual experiences outside of the Holy Spirit. I've got lots of friends involved in different spiritual experiences. And uh, uh, that, by the way, is the reason why the church, we need to keep preaching Jesus. And we need to keep experiencing the Holy Spirit. It's a bit silly if we've got access to the Holy Spirit, we can experience Him. And then we don't experience the Holy Spirit because we forget to. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, people all around looking for spiritual reality are having these ready spiritual experiences all the time. <laughs> Listen to that verse again, verse 4. For if someone comes to you and preaches to Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit than the spirit you received, or a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So, what I want to do at the end of my message, I just jotted down some points here, uh, is I want to speak about the real Jesus. The real Jesus you find in the Bible. By the way, it's an enormous subject, and I'm only going to look at it from one angle. But Mark chapter 8, if you can just put that up on the screen, Jesus and his disciples went onto the villages and around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? That's still a good question. Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, what are the prophets? As the centuries have ticked on, there are now reams of answers to that question. Who do do people say Jesus is? He's kind of, you know, everybody's got their own spin on him. And uh, this is a critical moment in in the story of the Gospels. And the whole church is going to be built on what happens next. Verse 29, who do you say I am? And Peter puts his neck on the line and he says, you are the Christ. By the way, if you read the Gospel of Mark, this is the high point. This is the revelation upon which the church is built. Jesus, after this, actually says to Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock the church will be built. People think the rock refers to Peter. The Catholic Church believes, you know, actually the whole church is built on the Pope Peter, the first Pope. But it's not the rock. It's this revelation that Jesus, who lived in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, is the Christ. Jesus Christ. I honestly thought that was a surname. Until I became a Christian reading the Bible. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's not a surname, it's a title. With so much content packed into it, it's quite unbelievable. And it's used 500 times in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus is a lot of things, but don't miss this Jesus is the Christ. What do we mean when we say Jesus is the Christ? A Christian, by the way, is somebody that acknowledges Jesus is the Christ. I mean, a Christian could be other things, but a Christian can't be less than that. A Christian is somebody who goes, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago, is the Christ. But what do we mean by that? Well, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we say that we realize that he is the promised Messiah. The word Christ is Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. And the word Messiah literally means the spirit-empowered king. In the Old Testament, there were all of these prophecies about a coming mighty and merciful king that would rule over the earth and would be kind of the earthly counterpart to, to God in heaven. So God, if God will have his throne in heaven, then his throne will flow through this Christ who will also have a throne on earth. Isaiah chapter 9, beautiful um, passage says, Unto us a son is born, it's a prophecy. Unto us a child is given. And, uh, and the government of the world will rest on his shoulders. And uh, of his government and his peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and uphold it and establish it in righteousness and justice forever and ever. I mean, talk about a stunning promise. <coughs> a child born to us who would be king of the world, who would sit on the throne that doesn't just last for a couple of decades, but Forever. I mean, one of the cool things about the history of the world is, you know, kingdoms come, kingdoms go, kingdoms come, kingdoms go. I mean, every empire that seems like it's now the eternal empire begins to fade. Isn't that what's happening America? Seems like it's going to be the eternal empire up until the last few years. Like, uh-oh, maybe not. Now we're looking for East China. What's coming out of that place? Are you going to be the super kingdom of the world? And this promise comes along that there will come a kingdom that will rise on planet earth that will never end. I mean, it's exquisite promises. To, to call Jesus the Christ means that, that we believe that Jesus is the King who brings the kingdom. He's the King who brings the kingdom. When you read the, the story of the Bible, the Old Testament, there's all of these promises, this expectation. And as the story of the Old Testament goes on, there is such disappointment. Because what's happening to Israel is that they're getting their butts whipped by life. They just keep on getting tyrannized by nations. And right near the end of the Old Testament, the prophets start standing up and saying, there is coming a powerful disruption. The present evil age, the one that we live in, is about to be eclipsed by the coming future world. So think about the present evil age is like this. And the coming future age. And the prophets are saying there's coming a Messiah. A moment when the present evil age will be eclipsed by the future kingdom age. The coming future world. And when you read Isaiah, especially Isaiah, tends to really hone in on this. Chapter after chapter. He speaks about how the the, the kingdom of, the the present age of injustice and war will be eclipsed by peace. By um, harmony. Darkness will be eclipsed by light. There's no spirit anywhere we look. Oh, but the spirit is going to come and he's going to pour out like a deluge of a flood that will cover the nations of the world. People everywhere will know the spirit. The oppression we now know will give way to redemption. Sickness and brokenness will give way to healing and wholeness. Distress and despair will give way to peace and joy, and vibrant life. God will defeat His enemies. And death will be swallowed up. We will receive resurrection bodies that live forever. And the fallen creation that we live in at the moment, with the dark shadow of of death over it, will be eclipsed by a new cosmos, a new creation, where everything is renewed. I mean, these are the promises. So that by the time Jesus is, is born... The Jews who have now had these prophecies in their their back pockets for centuries... ...have got their hopes up. And yet at the same time, in the centuries before Jesus comes... ...their their inflamed hopes are also very confused. Because straight off of these prophecies comes another invading nation. Assyria. Babylon. Persia. Greece. Rome. Will it ever end? And in fact, by the time Jesus is born... They don't want to do with these promises. And most commonly in the nation of Israel, they politicize the promises. They go, the Messiah is coming and he's going to be a political Messiah. Who's going to drive the Romans up into the sea where they will drown. In the same way that, that, that the people who followed Moses and the Israelites into the Red Sea drowned. He's going to destroy our enemies. They're looking for a political Messiah. Which is why Jesus again and again says, When someone says, hey, yo, you're the Messiah. He says, shh. He doesn't want work to get out. In fact, there's been one Messiah contender after another. Somebody comes up, I'm the Messiah. And he goes, you're the Messiah? And he gets killed. You're the Messiah? He gets killed. I mean, this is a dying hope. And along comes Jesus, who is the Messiah. My kids and I were watching Doom. It's just come out. It's probably going to be one of the best movies of the year. And uh, the whole movie is about this guy who is the El-Gaib. The Messiah. <laughs> and uh, there's something in you know, the imagination of the world. Think about how many stories they are. They look we're looking for the person that will risk all to save us. And all of this actually echoes something that's really happened. Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, Jesus arrives, just think about it. He proclaims the gospel, he, he's his opening eyes, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is here, repent and believe the good news. Ah! He's brought the kingdom. And then He demonstrates the kingdom. He casts out demons and heals broken bodies. Each time it shows God's delivering power, healing power. The kingdom of God is starting to break out in our midst. He teaches the kingdom. And Jesus does all of these parables in the Bible. And usually they start with the line, the kingdom of God is life. He teaches the kingdom. And then when he gets all these disciples, he, he guides them to reorganize their entire lives around the kingdom. He says, when you pray, pray the kingdom. I mean, you know the Lord's prayer maybe, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He teaches his disciples to seek the kingdom. He says, look around at people who don't know God. They're running off the material wills. They're running off the comforts. They're running off the security. Not you. You seek first the kingdom. Yeah. You seek first the kingdom, and then he, he gets the disciples to to minister the kingdom in Matthew chapter ten, I think it is. He says, "As you go, preach the kingdom of God is here." And then heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, drive out demons. Freely receive, freely give. They are living in the kingdom. They are ministering the kingdom. I mean, what is Jesus' death? Jesus' death is a king taking on in full frontal power the forces of darkness. What is his resurrection? His resurrection is the embryonic um, arrival of the new age, the new creation. His body is new. And what's happened to Jesus' body will happen to your body. In fact, it will happen to the whole cosmos. What is his ascension, where Jesus rises up to heaven? Well, it's him rising up to sit on his throne. This week, um, I said to Ivy, Ivy, choose a psalm, any psalm. We usually go through the Bible as a family. Sometimes, we just, I don't know what to do next, and I say, psalm, anything between 150. And Ivy goes, 110. I said, do you want to believe Psalm 110? Is the psalm yes. most quoted in the New Testament, and we read it. Where David looks up, and he says, the Lord sent to my I said, Ivy, think about There's a guy writing a song. He sounds ridiculous. He's speaking. He's he's the top dog in the world. He's the king. And he's looking up. He says, The Lord said to my Lord. It's like, You mean there's two guys above you? And obviously there's God the Father, God the Son. And the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand and let me make all of your enemies a footstool at your feet. I mean, this is God's great plan that Jesus would rule and reign. Jesus is seated on a throne. And then when He sends out the Spirit... The Spirit is the inbreaking of God's kingdom. We taste the powers of the coming age. I think what we need to understand is that when we believe and call on Jesus as Christ, what we discover is that, and this is the great surprise in the story of the Bible, is that we live in the already and the not yet. Remember what I said? Isaiah and the prophet said that the present age will be eclipsed by the future age? Well, Jesus comes, he doesn't wrap up the present evil age. He simply launches his kingdom age in the middle of this age so that we now live in the age of the overlap. I mean, it's quite amazing. You can't understand the Bible unless you understand what I'm trying to do with my arms, by the way. This is it. I was going to translate up the podcast. You, yes, I know. Podcast you guys are lost okay. forever. Should have been in the church. <laughs> Jesus is already here. But there's so much more coming. You, you know when... when Every morning, there's a shaft starting to shine out from the eastern horizon. You can't see the sun, but it's already here. We haven't experienced all of the kingdom, it's still coming, but already now shafts of light are in our midst, so that the church is caught between a victory and a triumph. Oscar Kuhlmann, a brilliant German. Theologian came up with the ultimate analogy for living in the already and not yet just two years after World War II came to an end. He was the first guy to spot the analogy. He says, we are like those that are caught between D, uh, D-Day and V-Day. Do you know the history of World War II? D-Day is the invasion of Normandy, the, 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 the Allied forces land on Europe. And once they get a foothold on the land, right, we just know it's a matter of time. Once they get a foothold and a beachhead, in Europe, it's just a matter of time. So victory is guaranteed already. Uh, so it's a D-Day. V-Day only comes a year and a little bit later when they finally actually, you know, they've won the war. So since a sense, D-Day, the war is won. V-Day, the war is done. The church is caught between a victory. Jesus has already, the, the war is already won. The war is not yet done. <laughs> We're caught in between the overlap of the ages, darkness, suffering. It's still in our midst, but the future glory is still coming. Last weekend, I listened to Judy talking to um, Sam. Sam was asking all kinds of questions. We pray for these conversations with our children, where they 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 tend to just become really spiritual, spiritual curious. And Judy was answering so well and describing how one day Jesus is going to come back in glory and in power. The first time He came was in weakness under the radar so to speak, but next time he's coming back with glory and power and he's gonna he's gonna eliminate all the suffering. He's gonna tell all the bad things in the world and Sam this wide eye and he said, This is very good for me. And he's only how old is he? Seven years old. Then he's got some painful memories to read. So his consul's out, he's been hit by his brother a thousand times he's had his ego wounded but you know, he knows suffering. He just longs for this day where suffering will come to end.
1: And it will come to
0: an end. Jesus is the Christ. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we pin our hopes to that Jesus. I don't know what's in your suitcase, the Jesus suitcase, but this is what the Bible puts in that suitcase. Jesus is the Christ. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ. And every community of people on the face of the earth that builds their lives on that revelation is part of the church in Jesus. And Paul says, hey, it's not going to be plain sailing. Again and again, Satan is going to raise up new crafty messages that are come along and going to look enticingly similar. But have... Remember what he says. He says, and hey, you put up with it. Don't put up with it. Have discernment. Paul is begging the Corinthians church. Be discerning. If you're going to build your life in the gospel, make sure you build your life in Jesus as the Christ. Not just somebody who momentarily tapped into Christ consciousness. (laughs) The Christ. The one who saves us and saves the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We trust you. I mean, I like Paul's analogy that we are like a woman engaged to Jesus. You have swept us off our feet. You have won our affections. Uh, We heard lots of stories. We've met lots of suitors. But you're the one. You're the one for us. God, help us to settle our minds and our hearts on you as the Christ. Settle our lives on you as the Christ. and, And help us to be discerning, not only for our own lives, but for people we love. I mean, here's Paul. He cares about this Corinthian church. And because of that, he's trying to awaken them to what's actually happening. They're getting enticed away from their pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. Mind you, it doesn't just have to be a false teaching about Jesus. We can get caught up in a, a false promise. We begin to hope that this person we've just met is going to save the day. Or if I could just uh, you know, get this promotion... Or if I can finally resolve this thing in my life and we run off the false hopes, all the while we've got one whose promise is good and we will never fail. Never fail us. We love you, Jesus.